can go and worship, uh, continue to worship by contemplating and thinking about and meditating on and praying with regard to the study we had this morning. So let's pray, and then we will open the scriptures together. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity that we can open your word. Thank you for the privilege we have of when uh, it's not exactly conducive to traveling, that we can be together, at least virtually, and we can enjoy your scriptures, enjoy your truth. I pray that your spirit will minister to us, that you will open our eyes to see. I pray that you will, you will use your scriptures <clears throat> to transform us, as you have promised to do. I pray you will bring us into greater maturity and love for you, and that you will inflame our hearts with confidence in you and what you're about and what you're doing. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning and help me to be able to accurately and carefully present the scriptures. And uh, Lord, I pray you'll honor yourself in what we do this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 27. And we're actually, I know it's going to shock some of you, we are actually going to travel, Lord willing, all the way through chapter 22, verse 21. Uh, it is not the complete story. Uh, the story continues after verse 21, but I had, I had to cut it off somewhere or else we'd be here all day. And uh, although I wouldn't mind that, I think that probably you have other things to do. Um, so we're going to break the study up, uh, at least the storyline, the immediate storyline up um, into several packages. Um, but that being said, we, I tried to figure out what's the best package to look at this morning. So that's what we're going to look at. Starting in verse 27 of chapter 21 and working our way through, it is interesting before I read the text, it's very interesting to recognize that the events that begin to transpire in 21-27 are actually laying the foundation for the basically the trajectory for the rest of Paul's life. In other words, what I mean by this is from here on out, at least in the recorded history, Paul is going to either be in prison He's going to be under arrest, he's going to be going to trial, um, or he's going to be traveling to another arrest and trial. And uh, that's what we find out for the rest of this book, uh, from chapter 21, verse 27, all the way through to the end of chapter 28, when he goes to Rome. That's what we find out is going to be happening in Paul's life. It's a really significant chunk of time, and it's, it's a, a chunk of scriptures that are looking at all the various difficulties, uh, probably the pinnacle of Paul's difficulties that he will go through in his walk with Jesus Christ. And that becomes very important, and I think it will be very important for us to realize that. Now, there are other things that happen after Acts 28 in Paul's life, but they're not recorded here. And um, some of that comes out of church tradition um, and things like that. So, but what we're going to be looking at today is the beginning of this final conclusion of Paul's earthly ministry. So with that in mind, um, let's read the text, and then we're going to walk our way through it. And as we've done with narrative so many times, rather than having a nice, neat outline, we're just going to wander through the text and identify things, talk about them, move on, and try to bring them all together at the end and figure out what the point of it all is. Um, if I may say, before we read the text, there is one problem text that we've got to discuss as well. Um, it is interesting that the last couple weeks, we've seen some problem text. This text has one as well. And so we'll, we'll wrestle with it. And I think we'll come up with a good answer, and then we'll, we'll continue to work our way through the text. So let's start at verse 27 of uh, chapter, of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 27 of chapter 21 of the book of Acts. Just a reminder that the background to this section is that Paul has come to, uh, to uh, Jerusalem. He's 
met with James and the elders, and we'll talk about it later, but James and the elders basically give Paul a warning. We'll cover that intro in a little bit. I just want to remind you, starting in verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once gates were shut. The gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and the centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of, of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who... Uh, then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictest manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about, a new, about noon a great light from heaven sh suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand, and the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was being led, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, 
receive your sight. And at the very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. When the, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, if we, uh, since we're just wandering through the text, I'm going to jump to the middle or last third of the text real quickly to address the problem passage first. Then we're going to get into the text itself. So if I may address. the problem text for you so because I don't want to be distracted by it so the best way to not be distracted is by putting it out in the very beginning and then we can understand it briefly and then we're going to enjoy the text itself and try to understand the flow of the text uh, the text that's the problem text um, is basically uh, verse 16 but if you would just join with me once again I'm going to start reading in verse 14 and he said this is in verse 20, or chapter 22. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed to you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone, uh, everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. There's our text. Verse 16 is the problem text. And what I mean by problem text is it's a confusing text in this case, and it's easily misunderstood. As a matter of fact, there are some groups of Christianity, and I use the term loosely, who would look at verse 16 and say that the text tells us baptism washes away your sins, which is, at first reading, at initial or, or surface reading, it sounds that way, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so in order to understand that text, does baptism wash away sin or does it not? If you know me at all, you know my, my perspective is, my theology, theological bent is that it does not wash away sin. But it, it, the text seems to say that as Ananias communicates with Saul, and he says to him, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. There's a couple things we need to understand about the text. And then there's a couple things we need to understand about the context, the large context of this text. That is, if we're going to talk about the large context, we're talking about the actual story found in Acts chapter 9. Um, so what's interesting about the text, firstly, is the last phrase in my translation says, calling on his name. <clears throat> so it says, rise and be baptized, washing, wash away your sin, calling on his name. Um, that uh, calling on his name is, if I may use a Greek term, it's in the aorist form, and it really, uh, most literally and most accurately should be understood as having called upon his name, it, it, which more accurately puts it into a, a past tense perspective, having called upon his name. 
Um, and, and we certainly understand, if you think about the larger context, it is clear he has called on his name already. If you think through the storyline, he's on his way to Damascus, as he already described up here in chapter 21 or 22. He's described how he's on his way to persecute Christians, to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem so they can be tried and convicted, killed, or thrown in prison. And um, what happens is he's walking along the road. What it says, in, even in this text, it says that a great light around noon shone around him, verse 6, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me, and the, uh, understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? Very important phrase of Paul in that text. What shall I do, Lord? It follows up with, and the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. What is Paul doing? He's going up to persecute Christians. Once the light shines and he discovers that it is Jesus of Nazareth that is speaking to him, he does what? He calls out to the Lord. But what he calls out to the Lord is a call not out of rebellion. Quite to the contrary, it is a call out in submission. What should I do, Lord? That's an interesting, what shall I do, Lord? An interesting statement. It is a statement of submission. It is a call of recognizing who this one Jesus is and who he is. And his response instantly changes from, I'm going to persecute Christians, to what shall I do? What's the evidence that his perspective has absolutely changed? Well, because what the text says, the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And he does what? Does he argue with Jesus and say, no, I've, appointed, I've already been appointed to persecute Christians? No. He argues something, he, he responds radically different. When Jesus says to him, go to Damascus, which he was already going to, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do, by implication means all you think you've been appointed to do is null and void. It's not what you're appointed to do. There's something different that I've appointed you to do. And what does Paul do? What does Saul do? Saul, according to the text, goes to Damascus, verse 11. He's led by his companions to Damascus. For what, for what reason? To persecute Christians? No. It's to find out what he's appointed to. And so when he meets Ananias, what does Ananias do? He speaks to him. The first thing he does is he um, receives his sight back. Verse 6 one referring to Jesus. And to hear a voice from his mouth, what happened on the road to Damascus, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now, we're going to talk about that statement again in the future as we go through the text. That's an important statement. But for right now, discussing this, this passage, when he says, Arise and be baptized, verse 16, wash away your sins, having called upon his name. The calling upon his name happened in chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. 
not in Damascus. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul emphatically says he was not saved. He did not receive the gospel from a man, referring to Ananias. Instead, he received, he said, from Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he says he received it, it means that he heard it and embraced it, was captivated by it, was saved. Very important that we get the, the storyline. That's the big context. He was saved. So the question then is, when he was saved, was he saved from his sins or not? Well, being saved from your sins and from the penalty of sin and having your sins dealt with and atoned for is the very essence of what justification is. That, for Paul, took place on the road to Damascus. So what is going on in verse 16? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, having called upon his name. Or having called upon his name. What he's, I would argue, talking about in verse 16 is that part of baptism is a symbolic demonstration of what actually happened, the washing away of your sin. It is the picture of the washing away of your sin, and that is exactly what uh, Ananias is saying, or it's recorded here that he said in chapter 9. So the baptizing and washing away of your sins, having called on his name, is, that, is talking about that the baptism pictures it, evidences it, declares it, demonstrates it. It's, a, it's an illustration of what took place. And that's what's really going on, I would argue, in, in verse 16 of the book of Acts, chapter 22. I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to spend too much time. There's a lot more we could say about it. But I think that the large context, the statement of Paul in Galatians uh, chapter 1, the statement in Act, the various statements in Acts chapter 9, the statements here in Acts 22, I think all bring clarity and understanding to verse 16 and help us understand what it means. Going back to verse 27 of chapter 21 then, and we're going to wander our way through, I want to remind you of the context of the storyline. Again, Paul comes into Jerusalem. He stays with the brothers, verse 17. After staying with the brothers overnight, the next day he goes to see James and the elders. And once he sees James and the elders, he begins to tell them about all that God has done through the Gentiles. This is just a review of last week. All that God has done through his ministry, him being the means, the tool being used by God, many people being saved, many Gentiles being saved. So they, there are many believe, who have believed in Jesus Christ. And it, specifically, it says, verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. So the idea is, looking back over the last, from chapter 9 all through the middle of chapter 21, he reveals to them, he explains it, especially 15 or 16 through tw uh, the uh, middle of 21, he explains to them all the things that God has done in the time he's been away from them. They hear it, they glorify God because all these Gentiles have been saved. Verse 20, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands uh, there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And the very next statement, they're all zealous for the law. And as Rusty pointed out to me last week, and I missed this, they, it is interesting that James and the elders didn't say they're all zealous for Jesus. They're all zealous for the law. That's really key in our discussion from last week. They're all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you and they, uh, that you 
teach all the Jews all this stuff that's, that is, is uh, a twisting of truth or absolute lies. We're not going to get into all those things. So for Paul, as I said last week, Paul is concerned. Unlike the Gentiles who have truly embraced Christianity, he's hearing from James and the elders that these Jews have also embraced Christianity and they believe in Christ, but their emphasis is not on Jesus, it's the law and their zealousness for the law. That becomes very key as we work our way through. And so Paul goes through this purification rite that we saw in chapter uh, 21 uh, in last week's message, at, and then we come to chapter 27. Remember what we said last week, this is really important. Paul is going through this, this purification rite for the purpose of discovering where are the hearts of these supposed Jewish believers that the elders and James are talking about. Where are their hearts? Are they truly saved? As we mentioned last week, it is interesting. They glorify God when, when Paul tells about all the Gentiles being saved. But it is strangely absent that Paul doesn't glorify God, or that Paul that we don't see Paul glorifying God with regard to these Jews. Why? Because he's concerned. So he goes through this, this, these rites of purification. We come to verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, that's referring to the seven days of purification, and Paul has been in the temple for a lot of that time, going through this, these rites of purification, when, when the seven days were almost completed, the very thing James and, Paul, James and the elders was warning Paul about and telling him to do these things to try to mitigate that, <clears throat> the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, verse 28, Men of Israel, help! This is a man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought... Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. We're going to stop there for just a second. So the time's almost up, or that's seven days of purification, and the very thing James and the elders were concerned about begin to happen. But it is interesting where it starts. And, and the reason why it's interesting how it starts is because the people, since Paul has been gone for a long time, the people in Jerusalem would not necessarily rec recognize him. And so he's in the temple for seven days, and he almost seven days, and he doesn't seem to be recognized. He's going through these purification rites. He doesn't seem to be recognized. But when the seven days were almost completed, so maybe he's like six and a half days or so in, what happens? Well, the text tells us what happens. The Jews from Asia see him in the temple. Well, who are these Jews from Asia? Well, most likely... They are, they are from Ephesus because they recognize Trophimus, verse 29, the Ephesian. So most likely they are the Jews in Ephesus and the surrounding areas around Ephesus that have been causing problems for Paul all along. They've been following Paul. They've been, Paul would go to some place, he, they'd show up a little bit later and cause all sorts of issues, all sorts of problems, riling everybody up. He'd go to the next city and surely enough, shortly thereafter, these Jews would show up because they're after him. They're, they're, they're trying to thwart his ministry. They would show up and rile up the people. He'd go to another city, and the same thing would happen again and again. And so here they are almost seven days in. Paul is quietly going through these purification rites. These Jews finally show up in town that have been following him city after city. They see him. They, unlike the Jews in Jerusalem, recognize him. And when they recognize him, they do what they've always done every single time. They 
go to the crowd, the whole crowd, and stir up the whole crowd. Now, we need to stop on that for a second because we've got to ask ourselves, who's the whole crowd? This is really important. Who's the whole crowd? I, I find most commentators say that, that, that what these Jews are doing is they're stirring up the other Jews who are not Christians. And I would agree but disagree with that statement. I would absolutely agree and absolutely disagree at the same time. What I, what I mean by that? I mean, these Jews from, most likely from Ephesus and the surrounding area, okay, that's where, that's that area of Asia, that isn't Asia that we know today, but it's what they called Asia back then. We call it now the ancient Near East, but it's the north side of it. In any case, um, so what they did is they saw Paul and they immediately began to rile the Jews up. There were that is the whole crowd that was in the temple. Well, who's in the temple? What we're going to find is that those who are in the temple are the Jews who are practicing Judaism because they're Jewish and they, they believe in the Old Testament law and they're following the Old Testament law. But then we also will find that there are Christians there, that is, those who James and the elders talked about because they, they, the, the people at this point in time are still worshiping in the temple. That is, the ones who name Jesus are still worshiping in the temple. They're worshiping house to house as well, but they're going to the temple still. So what we have here is these Jews are stirring up anybody who's available. I would argue it's a mixture of people who are pure Jews, that is, they're pure, they purely practice Judaism, as well as these people who, in the context, are zealous for the law. That is, they have mixed the worship of Christ and the worship or following of the law, and they've, they've mixed it all together in, in, a, in a mixture that is unholy and unrighteous, which was the very thing Paul was trying to determine. And so what happens is the whole crowd are, are totally stirred up, and it says right away, I mean, it happens quick. The, the Jews from Asia see him, they stir up the whole crowd, and they lay their hands on him. That is, they grab him. They don't allow him to escape. And these Jews from Asia start crying out, Men of Israel, again, we just read it, verse 28, Help, this is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, referring to all of his ministry, uh, against the people and the law in this place. And he says against the people. He's talking against the Jews, which is not true at all. He wasn't speaking out against the Jews as a people. Speaking out against the law, and that's not true as well. He was saying the law doesn't justify. He, does, he never said that, that the law had no purpose anymore. It just it served its purpose pre-salvation to point us to a redeemer, and it serves a whole different purpose after we're saved. It doesn't become non-purposeful after one is saved. It just serves a different purpose. And then he goes on in verse 28 and says, and this place. So they're claiming that he's, he has been speaking out against the temple, condemning the temple. None of those are true, as we talked about in previous weeks. Moreover, he, can be brought, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. That's a really important statement. That would really stir up the Jews in that era. Why? Because 
the the idea there was a place for Gentiles to go into the temple. It was it was a Jewish I'm sorry a Gentile court that the Gentiles could go into. But other than the Gentile court, Gentiles were not allowed anywhere else in the temple. Uh, there's no place they could go other than that one place for, that was reserved for Gentiles. And they're claiming that Paul took Jew, uh, a Gentile into Jewish places in the temple. Um, why is that so significant? It was so important to the Jews that they actually, it's been found in archaeological ruins, as a matter of fact, two different plaques that basically state, this is not verbatim, but it basically states that Gentiles are not allowed past this point. If you go past this point, your death is on you. And it was such a passionate thing that the, even though death could only be done when sanctioned, that is the capital punishment, could only be performed when sanctioned by the Roman government, the Jews could not do it. This is one aspect where the Romans let the Jews do it if they so chose to. That's how, how much of a hot button issue it was. And so these Jews from Ephesus, from Asia, knew that if they could get the people riled up, there was no better tool than this one. If they get them riled up, then Paul will probably be killed. And so the last thing they say is he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Verse 29, though, Luke gives us the backstory. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So this is based pure and simply upon a wrong presupposition. They just, because they saw Paul and him together out and about in the city, they presumed that he also was with, with Trophimus in the temple, in the Jewish places in the temple, which was false. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up. Now no longer is, and this happens quick, it's like a wildfire. No longer is it just the people in the temple that are stirred up, but the entire city is stirred up. This spread like wildfire. And the people ran together. That is, they ran. People stormed the temple. They are after Paul, verse 30. They get there and they all seize them. Originally, it was just the Jews from, from Ephesus, from Asia that had it. But then they all seize Paul, that is, the whole crowd, and they drag him out of the temple and once the gates were shut, and the, the significance of the gates being shut is that, they, that there's no way anyone's going to be allowed in the temple because you can't have all this bloodshed and everything else going on in the temple. Verse 31, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. This tribune of the cohort, a tribune is a leader of a thousand, that's the cohort, a thousand Roman soldiers. Word came to him as they're trying to kill Paul that something horrible was going on and all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. And so verse 32, the, the tribune grabs the cohort, the thousand soldiers, and he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now, I want to make sure you get the picture. They've seized Paul. They've drug him out of the temple because they can't kill him in the temple. They're in the process of killing him. That's what's really going on here. They're beating him to within, at this point in time to within an inch of his life. He is just absolutely, if you can just picture it, thousands of people, everyone that can possibly hit him is pounding on him. 
That's the position he is in. They stop when the tri tribune and soldiers come up. Verse 33, then the tribune come up, came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So now he's chained up. That becomes important next week. He, he gets chained up. He's, he's, he's uh, locked up, as it were, with chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. So the tribune is trying to figure out what's going on. He's like, I don't know what's going on. I've got to figure this out because, of course, he's in charge of what goes on in the city and it needs to be kept under control. <clears throat> when he asks and he starts demanding the people around him tell what's going on, some in the crowd, verse 34, were shouting one thing and some another. So there's total confusion. The result is that he couldn't understand what's going on. Nothing makes sense to him. He can't get the facts because everything is out of control. You can imagine everybody screaming and yelling their own perspectives and nobody knows. And probably three-quarters of the people there don't even know what's going on. So he orders him to be brought into the barracks, that is the soldier's barracks. Verse 35, and when he'd come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. What that means in verse 35 is if he was just to walk in with the soldiers around him, they would still be punching him and hitting him. So the soldiers had to get real close to him to protect him, so close that they were actually carrying him. And you can picture this, the soldiers with one arm, there may be three or four soldiers with one arm each are carrying him and with their shield, they're holding their shield up to protect him and to protect themselves because of all the violence that is still being, being put towards Paul. Verse 36, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. They wanted him dead. They're after his death. More than anything else, they just want to see him done. So as they're going up the steps into the barracks, verse 37, he turns, that is, Paul turns to the tribune and says, may I say something to you? You'll notice that the tribune is quite surprised because Paul speaks to him in Greek. And so he says, do you know Greek? He didn't expect that. Verse 38 tells us what he's thinking uh, with regard to Paul. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stor uh, stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? He's confused. He's, Wait, you speak Greek? He was thinking that, that uh, Paul was an Egyptian. What is that all about? Well, right before this event, historically it's recorded that there was an Egyptian guy who uh, gathered thousands of people around him and uh, basically stormed the temple, and, or stormed Jerusalem, and said his, he told his followers that he could speak and the walls of Jerusalem would fall and they could enter and, and pillage the whole place. Well, the soldiers had come out and attacked them and drove them off and arrested and killed many of them. But the leader of it got away. That's the storyline, the backstory. And so this tribune is thinking that Paul is the Egyptian. Okay, that's why he brings that up. Who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the Assyrians out into the wilderness. And the reason why it's out into the wilderness is because the, soldier, the, the tribune and the soldiers were chasing uh, them and capturing and killing many of them. Paul replies in verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, in effect saying, no, I'm not Egyptian. I'm not who you think I am, which totally confuses, of course, the, um, the tribune. I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, <clears throat> a citizen of no obscure city. Very important statement because it's true. Cilicia, it was a was a, a very important Roman city. It was a privilege to be from that town. It was an important town. 
And so as a result of that, now the tribune begins to listen to him both because he's a Jew and because he is from Tarsus in, in Sicily. Um, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, normally you would not expect the tribune to do so, but because he's a Jew and from Tarsus, he allows him to do so. That's what it says. And he gave him permission. Verse 40, Paul standing up on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people, and there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language saying. So the, the, the tribune lets him do that, and he stands and turns towards the, the, the mob, as it were, thousands and thousands of people. He, because, and I suspect if Paul would have been by himself and tried to get him to be quiet, they would not have been. But because the soldiers were there and they're allowing him to speak, then as he waves his hand for them to be quiet, they get quiet to listen to what he's going to say. And he speaks to them in the Hebrew language, which probably is a form of Hebrew. It's probably Aramaic because that's what the people typically spoke. Be that as it may, <clears throat> he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense I now make before you. Verse 2, And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, and Aramaic is part of the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So they really start to focus and listen to what he has to say. And his de declaration starts out with his story. He's basically telling his story. I'm a Jew. I know we're reading through this a second time, but I think it's important. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now that's an important statement because Gamaliel, and this isn't the first time this comes up, but Gamaliel was a highly respected um, uh, Pharisee, highly respected teacher of the law. And he wasn't just a really highly, probably one of the most highly respected teachers of the law and Pharisee, but he was one of the ones that all the true Jews would listen to because he, above and beyond all the rest of the Pharisees, was a, a committed to keeping the law faithfully and accurately, and he was very much a traditionalist in the view of the law, which is why we can understand where Paul comes from when he talks about the law in Philippians chapter 3, because he learned from Gamaliel. And so it says, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel according to the, uh, the strict manners of the law of our fathers. Unlike all the rest of the Pharisees, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a law keeper of law keepers in Paul 2. Being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day, are this day, because obviously they're zealous after God. These people who are raging after him are zealous for God. They're just wrong in their thinking, but they're zealous after God. Verse four: I persecuted this way. The word this, the, those words this way is referring to the way Christianity. Those who are Christians, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. They're the ones sending me out, he's saying, and they're all there. So he's, he's turned to them and say, guys, you can bear witness to that. You know this is who I was. You absolutely know. You knew me. You sent me out to do this. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. That's what they wanted me to do. That's what I wanted to do. I was on my way there doing that very thing. That's how zealous I was for the law. You think you're zealous for the law is what he's saying to these Jews. You think you're zealous for the law? I was zealous for the law. And then he goes on and talks about his conversion, six and following. And we've already read through that. Um, but he, he describes his conversion there. 
And what he says in his conversion, importantly so, he says, what shall I do, Lord, as we just mentioned, verse 10, and the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Jesus of Nazareth told him, I've got a new plan, as we already talked about. And he declares to these Jews that are wanting to kill him, listen, I was just like you. However, then I met Jesus. That's what he said. However, then I met Jesus. And when I met Jesus, everything changed. Because Jesus revealed to me something different. And so he goes on to Damascus, meets Ananias, and while he meets, after he meets Ananias, he receives his sight, and he tells the people, verse 14 again, the God of our fathers appointed you, as Ananias is saying to him, and he's telling these Jews, I want you to know something. Ananias told me, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. What did Paul just do? He declares Jesus to these Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Now, this verse 14 uh, uh, and 15, because it goes on, for you will be a witness for him to every one of you that have seen uh, what you have seen and heard. Now, I want to stop in that for just a second. 14 and 15 is really important because if it is true, and I believe it is, that the riled-up crowd is both Jews who practice Judaism as well as Jewish people who claim to be believers, uh, the previous section in, verse 20, in chapter 21, it's a combination of those two. And what he just said to those Jewish believers is absolutely important. At least they're believers from James and the elders' perspective. Whether they are, eh, Questionable, at best. What did he say in 14 and 15? Listen to it again. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you, Ananias is saying, to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him of every one of what you have seen and heard. Key things being said here, not to, not, let me change that, not primarily to the Jews who are practicing Judaism, but to the Jews who claim to be believers but are still zealots for the law over in verse 20 of chapter 21. Those people, what does he say to them? Paul, in effect, is telling them something. Here's what he's telling them. When he says that Ananias said, you were appointed to see the righteous one, as well as the statement earlier as he and Jesus interacted on the road to uh, Damascus, and then, so remember that phrase in verse 14, to see the righteous one, and then the next phrase, and to hear a voice from his mouth, and then in verse 15, to be a witness to, uh, for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Those are key phrases for Paul. Why? Because in order to be an apostle, you had to be someone who saw and heard Jesus. You had to be taught by Jesus as a believer. Paul was. On the road to Damascus, he was. And then later on, he will be again as he goes out in the wilderness and Jesus teaches him for three and a half years. But the point of that text is to let these Jews who are claimed to be believers of Jesus and who yet are zealous for the law, who are recognizing James and other apostles as true apostles, what Paul just said is, I am also an apostle, without saying the word, he actually declares himself to be an apostle, and he shows the evidence that he is an apostle here. 
So jump down to 17. He continues his story after he's after he's saved. He's now he's been saved and he has been baptized and he has uh, received his appointment. Verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Wow, that happened right in the beginning. And here we are later in his life. Are they accepting his testimony? The answer clearly is no, of course not. They're still not. Verse 19, and I said, Lord, wait a second. The wait a second's not in the text, but you get the idea. They themselves know that I that that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Jesus, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They won't receive him. He says, Wait a second, they should receive me. He says to Jesus, wait, this, wait, no, no, let, back up the horses. I persecuted Christians. I despised them. I, I, I had them stoned. I agreed heartily with the stoning. I was involved in the persecuting and the arresting. I traveled from synagogue to synagogue. I, even went up, I was going up even to Damascus. Why wouldn't the Jews listen to me? If it would make most sense that I would be the person that they would listen to. I believe those same things until I met Jesus. So Paul says, God says to him, Jesus says to him, nope, they're not going to believe you. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Now, we know the storyline because I read the next verse. It is that statement, the Gentiles, it going to the Gentiles is the thing that absolutely riles them up again. So that's the text. We've been through it twice. We've been at this now for almost 45 minutes. And we've just wandered through it. Basically, what we've done is we've wrestled with how to understand the text. We had the problem passage that we wrestled with. And then how does the text work? What's going on in this text? And how does it fit into its context? What's going on here? What, In other words, what I mean by that is what do we do with this text? Because not a whole lot of, I mean, I did a lot of exposition and explaining, but, but what do we do with this storyline? How should we respond to the storyline? Well, I think there's several ways in which we can respond or apply this storyline or things we can gather from and come away from with this text. Number one, if I may give these to you in, in no specific order. <clears throat> one thing you have to recognize in this text, and it's not just this text, but in this text, is that when someone is saved, they are changed. You can't miss it. You just can't miss it. This storyline, paralleling chapter 9, Paul's conversion, but adding some significant things we're going to pick up on in just a second, you can't miss the point that we've been saying all along, and that is, when... The gospel is by the Spirit applied to someone. And they are taken, to quote Ephesians chapter 2, from death to life. When they are given faith to believe, and they come to faith and believe, 
they are changed. Why? Because the scriptures tell us we are given a new heart. Or as the Puritans used to say it, we begin to, by the Spirit, love what we once hated and hate what we once loved. And that's exactly what you see happening in Paul. It has happened, and it continues to happen in Paul. Here's Paul. He hates Jesus. He hates Christians. He hates everything to do with them. And then something happens. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and is gloriously saved, transformed. And what does he do? We know. First thing he does is gets up in the synagogue and preaches. And then after that, he goes out and he starts ministering to the Gentiles. And he travels all over, for the most part, the known world and preaches the gospel. He's absolutely transformed. So we have to recognize, as we said when we studied the book of Mark, when you come in contact with Jesus, you are changed. You either hate him or love him. And that hate or love demonstrates itself. It always does. It shows itself. Because the Spirit is powerful enough to take you from death to life, He is powerful enough to cause that life that we now have to exhibit itself. Our old life exhibited itself all the time, and that makes sense to us. But the new life, the Spirit is powerful enough to exhibit that new life. It should be expected. It absolutely should be expected. And I would argue that that's exactly what we see here. Paul de describes himself before he is saved. He describes the events on the road to Damascus and his transition from death to life. And then he describes how God used him to go out to the Gentiles. Now, what's more important is we see... If we read the storyline correctly, we see this exhibit of the spirit in Paul, the, tr the changed life in Paul. We see it on full display. Why? Because here he was getting beaten by people. The guards rescue him. The soldiers rescue him. He could have easily, the soldiers were taking him into the barracks along with the tribune. He could have easily said, said nothing because they were taking him into the, into the barracks. He would have been safe there. Outside the barracks, he could die. Inside the barracks, he's safe. What does he do? He gets up on the steps in front of the barracks, and he says what? Um, excuse me, Mr. Tribune. Is it all right with you if I speak to the crowd, to the mob, as it were, to the mob that wants to kill me? To the mob that has been beating me to an inch of my life, is it all right with you if I speak to them? Why would he say that? He's literally feet away from safety. And what does he do? He says, I'd like to talk to the crowd. He gets permission and he talks to the crowd. And what does he talk to the crowd about? Jesus. And the saving power of Jesus. The transforming work of Jesus. And it is interesting, when we understand it in its context, what Luke is doing is establishing a dramatic contrast 
And it's important that we see the contrast. The contrast is between Paul and the supposed believing Jews. Because the supposed believing Jews are claiming they're believers. The elders and, the, and, and James was bragging about these believing Jews, but they're zealous for the law. Paul, to the contrary, is zealous for the things of Jesus. And so what Luke does, he establishes a dramatic contrast. Paul, all he wants is for people to know Jesus. What he wants is the privilege and the honor to proclaim Jesus, even to the mob who wants him dead. These supposed believing Jews are the ones who want him dead. These, along with the other Jews, these are the ones who want him dead. These are the ones who want him off the earth. It reminds me of the Jew. They sound awful similar, also very, uh, it should sound very familiar to you and I. They sound just like the Jews in Stephen's day who just wanted him dead. And if we go to Stephen, it should these people today should sound, in the storyline, should sound very similar to who Stephen talked about when he said, which one of the prophets did you not kill? What we have is a storyline that is strung all through recorded history, biblically recorded history, of a hatred for the things of Christ. A hatred of the truth. And every time the truth came, those who were supposedly true followers ended up being the ones who were crying death. Even in Jesus' day, crucify him. And then afterwards, Stephen and Paul. That's what we find. So it is interesting because the contrast between the Jews who James and the elders were describing as believers and Paul is now complete. The contrast is complete. Paul, I just love Jesus. And so I just want to proclaim Jesus. The Jews who are supposedly believers but zealous for the law, they're fighting for the law. They're fight fighting for the temple. They're fighting for Judaism. That doesn't sound very Christian at all. And that was the whole point of why Paul went and followed through on it, to find out, were these people really Christians? The evidence is pretty clear. They're not. They sounded like it to James and the elders, but it doesn't sound like it. Because they're hating the one who's bringing the truth. They're despising the message. They're, they're absolutely rejecting it. So, first... The argument that Luke is trying to make, I would present to us, is that the transition from death to life evidences itself. And it doesn't just evidence itself. It's really important we get this. It doesn't just evidence itself in moralism, in being good moral people. The Jews were good moral people. They followed the law. It shouldn't just evidence itself in good moral living. To be truly saved evidences itself in loving and, no, let me change that, in knowing and loving Jesus. It should be evidencing itself in, in ever-growing love and knowing of Jesus. 
But following the call of Jesus is the evidence, if it's done correctly, is the evidence, and it's the response to knowing and loving Jesus. Because just obeying doesn't do anything. So the first application we could make out of the text is, am I a follower of Jesus? Am I a lover of Jesus? In other words, have I come in contact with Jesus and have I been changed? And the change is being a lover of Jesus. It's not, again, being better or doing well. It's, am I changed in that I love Jesus and I'm transformed by Jesus and I I just, I love him more than anything. And I'm growing in my, my love for him is growing ever more. Another application that we can drag out of this text <clears throat> that I think is very important, and I think we could argue it throughout the scriptures, it is this. Paul has been saved. We saw that in the text. And yet, in being saved and being transformed, something has happened. What has happened? People hate him. People despise him. People reject him and wish him to be dead. What is that all? Well, persecution. And this isn't new to us. We've talked about this in the past. But the application we can see very clearly here, because it's based upon other teachings of the scriptures, Jesus himself said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. The Bible tells us very clearly, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's really clear, and it's not just those two texts, it's many texts. Here's Paul living that out. It's like everywhere he goes, he's persecuted. Every time he opens his mouth, just about, except for a few exceptions, he's persecuted. It happens again and again and again. This should not surprise us. It should not. What should surprise us is that we don't. What should cause us to question, what should cause us to examine ourselves is that we don't, if we don't. It should cause us to look at our lives and say, why aren't we being persecuted? I'm not saying we should get up today and go out and try to figure out a way to get persecuted. No. The issue is if I love Jesus and the world hates Jesus, well, I suspect that, that what happens is I'll be persecuted if I love Jesus and they hate Jesus. I mean, my goodness, today's Super Bowl Sunday. You know what's going to happen today? One team's going to win and one team's going to lose. And you know what else is going to happen today? People are going to get beat up going to happen. You know why? Because if you love one team, you hate another team. That's the way it goes. That's why, I don't know if they still have it or not, but for years down at, down at the Eagle Stadium, they had a, a jail built in for people who were rowdy and, 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 and hurting people and doing something they shouldn't be doing. They locked them up right there. When you hate something, you hate it because you love something else. And if you love something, you defend it. And if you hate something, you fight it. That's the way it goes. That's the way it works. So if we love Jesus and the world hates Jesus, because the world certainly is not indifferent toward Jesus, 
if the world hates Jesus, then we should expect persecution. Last application, then we're going to close. If what I'm saying is right, and I believe it is, it should be very interesting to note that part of Paul's persecution, that this is not the only place this happens. I would argue it happens with Stephen as well. Part of Paul's persecution here in this text is from people claiming to be believers. It's crucial that we see that. Some of Paul's persecution, some of his persecutors claim to be believers, but they're zealous for the law. They claim to be believers. They persecute Paul. Why? Why would they do that? Well, as the Bible says, because not all Israel, Israel is Israel. Not all believers are, are believers. But God does preserve a faithful remnant. I want you to notice that preservation is a remnant, but it's also a faithful remnant. If these people are zealous for the law, that means they're not faithful toward Jesus. Yeah. You can't be faithful two ways. Man, the Bible tells we cannot serve God and mammon, for example. You can't serve God and money, and that's just an example. You can't serve, you could say it just as easily by just saying you can't serve God and, and leave it at that. But you can't serve God and, in this storyline, Judaism. It doesn't work that way. It's God alone. That's it. But he does preserve a faithful remnant. Other than the faithful remnant, the implication of that text is the rest are not preserved. And what does that mean? Well, if they're not preserved, it means that they are hellbound. Depart from me, I never knew you. Now, why do I say that? Because, again, as I've mentioned so many times in the past, Paul in Philippians said, I am confident of this very thing, or is it Ephesians? I've Ephesians. I, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will continue to perfect it. That means you will be changed, you will continue to be changed, you will continue to grow all the way until that quantum change time happens when I depart this earth and go into glory. But until that time comes, I will continue to be changed by the Spirit at work in me. If the Spirit's not at work in me, changing me, transforming me, and my love for Jesus, and my worship of Jesus, then I'm not the faithful remnant. And that's why the Scriptures tell us to call upon him while he may be found. Seek him while he is near. Examine ourselves to see if we're of the faith. But encouragingly, he says, all that the Father gives me, I lose none. And if we're his child, we will grow. We will, our love for him will grow deeper and deeper. And our serving of him, humbly serving him, will grow greater and greater because of his great love for us, which will cause us to love him. Those three applications are absolutely essential that we meditate on, that we wrestle with, because they are going to be applications that are going to show up repeatedly throughout the rest of this book. Let's have a word of prayer. And then we will end this study. I know it's gone a long time, but that's okay. It's all good. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us as we continue from here. Help us to understand. Help us to remember. Help us to meditate on these truths. 
Glorify yourself in our lives. Draw us close. Help us to realize who we are in you. And help us to be confident that, that you, if you've begun the good work, will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Help us to realize that salvation does result in change. And help us to understand that, that if you began it, you will continue to perfect it, and that will result in persecution. That will result in rejection. That will result in difficulty. And you will use that very thing to help us to grow and change and love you more. So work in our lives. Give us the boldness that we don't have. And Lord, we pray that it is fueled by love for you and your love for us. In your name I pray, amen. Have a good day.